0: Before we hear that conversation, a quick check-in. Have you subscribed to our show yet? Take a second if you can and make sure so you don't miss any of our great episodes. Thank you. There are three words no one ever wants to hear. You have cancer. But just about everyone knows someone who's gotten this very tough diagnosis. More than a million cases of cancer are diagnosed in the US every year, according to the American Cancer Society but there's actually a lot you can do to lower your risk for many types of cancer. And some of those steps are actually surprisingly simple. So what exactly helps and where should you start? We're talking about that today with Dr. John White.
3: Carrie, thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be with you today and and talk about what we can all do to
0: reduce our cancer risk. So I'm curious what or who um, inspired you to write this book?
3: Carrie, it really was this idea that you know, how do we prevent disease? I, I'm an internist. I, I still see patients and you know, we focus on treating people when they actually have symptoms, when they actually have disease. And over the, the 25 years I've been practicing, we often focus prevention efforts around diseases like diabetes. You know, we, we tell people, you want to watch your weight. You want to watch what you eat because you don't want to get diabetes. We do the same thing with heart disease in terms of don't eat too many fatty foods. Even when you have a heart attack, the whole focus is on you know how do you prevent the next one? But Carrie, we never do that with cancer. We never talk to patients about what are some steps other than screening that you can do to reduce your cancer risk. We'll be back after a quick break.
1: Go get a load of that happiness because happiness is healthy as we know it. Join us every week as we continue to provide you the best of health and fitness wellness updates from around the globe. Enjoy the show.
3: And now back to our episode.
0: And I'm curious that that term cancer risk Um, It seems straightforward, but I think it can actually get a little complicated. So can you explain exactly what that term risk really means and what kinds of things affect that risk?
3: Right. And and you talked about at the beginning that, you know, a million cases of cancer are diagnosed every year. Guess what? 600,000 people. 600,000 people die every year from cancer. So it's it's still a leading cause of death. And when we talk about risk, it's really what's your chances of getting cancer? And if you look at lifetime risk, in general, most people have one out of three chance of getting cancer during their lifetime. Wow. That includes benign cancers like skin cancers, but it's one in three. One out of every three people will be diagnosed with cancer during their lifetime. That's why we all know someone that has cancer, probably several people. One out of five, that's your risk of dying from cancer. So we have to put that all in perspective. You know, heart disease has a greater risk. Um, Getting diabetes um, is significant as well. But people don't often think about what's their risk Of getting cancer. And and that's the first step you need to know as you think about, well, I want to reduce my risk because that risk is pretty high in terms of what may happen over your lifetime.
0: It almost seems like there's kind of a, you know, uh, an element of um, kind of fate to a cancer Mm -hmm. diagnosis. Either you're going to get it or you're not. And I think you even said in the book The biggest myth that you hear is that cancer is completely genetic, like it's totally just out of your hands, whether you will get it or you won't. Um, Tell us why that's a myth.
3: It turns out that roughly 20 to 30% of all cancer cases are due to inherited mutations. That's a fancy word for basically genetics, that you have some predisposition to some type of cancer. But those are very few. The majority of cases of cancer are influenced by lifestyle, what we eat, how active we are, the quality of your sleep, the amount of stress that we have in our lives, our environment. But people don't think about it that way. They think, oh, you know, in some ways, oh, I don't have any family history. I don't know anyone that has cancer in my family, so I'm not at risk. So I don't need to worry about a screening. I hear that time and time again or I took the 23andMe test or one of the other Mm -hmm. tests that that screen for genetic risks of cancer. And that's an important point. It doesn't look for other cases. It's really only looking for that 20 to 30% that have inherited mutations. And as you kind of point out, some people think it's just luck, it's fate. Most of the time it's not. And that's The reason why I wanna empower people with this knowledge that then allows them to take control of their risk because they really do have that power when it comes to cancer, not for everyone. And there's gonna be people, Carrie, that do everything right and still get a cancer diagnosis because 20 to 30% of cancer is related to inherited mutations and, and other factors. But overall, for most people, And most cancers, there's a lot you can do to reduce your risk.
0: So I'm sure you've probably met people who are a little bit fatalistic about this. Um, You've mentioned it already. Like, you know, if it's in the cards for me, Mm -hmm. that's just the way it is. You know, I actually, I grew up with family members who would say, well, you got to die of something. Um, Mm -hmm. So what would you say to those people um, who have that approach or, or who just kind of think that way? Um, but give them some information that would help them feel like it really yeah. is in their hands.
3: Yeah. And you know, I have patients that say to me, they know so and so, you know, <laughs> who who did everything right, like I just referenced, and they still got cancer. So they're not, they're not gonna be worried that if they smoke or drink a lot of alcohol or overweight, that they're gonna be impacted by them because it's it seems like it's just fate. And the reality is to try to help them understand that no, it's not. And a cancer diagnosis is no walk in the park. Even though we have these amazing advances in treatment and targeted therapies, there's still bad outcomes. There's still a lot of impact on one's quality of life. Doesn't necessarily mean people will live longer. And I'm not sure all things being equal, would I choose a cancer diagnosis as the fatal blow as opposed to, to something else? The other challenge I really make people think about, Carrie, is you know if you're diagnosed with diabetes, you have opportunities to change your lifestyle. Often if you're diagnosed with heart disease, most people don't die from a heart attack the first time. Some people do, but the majority do not. You have an opportunity to change your lifestyle change the outcome of your life cancer diagnoses you don't always have that so it's what can we do now to prevent a diagnosis later and it's a mindset that takes time for for people to change because you're right no one really taught them really how much i eat how how well i sleep that's going to impact whether or not i get cancer So it takes some work.
0: A lot of people are aware of that. Like you were saying with heart disease and diabetes, a lot of people are aware of that connection. But with cancer, it seems like it's an extra leap that we're not always aware of.
3: Well, that's because we have so many awareness campaigns around heart well, disease. That's true. <laughs> and diabetes. And we tell people the relationship so they know about it. I mean, there's still people that deny the relationship uh, of, of weight and food with, with diabetes, for type 2 diabetes, or for heart disease. But most doctors aren't telling their patients, these are the things that you need to do in hopes that you don't get cancer later on in life.
0: So... Before we, I do want to talk about the actual specifics of the ways, the steps people can take to lower their risk, but for people who do have that family history of cancer, are there extra things that they should be doing to lower their risk since they already know that it's um, higher than other people's? Right. And we see that in some type
3: of breast cancers. Uh, Many people have heard of, of BRCA1 and 2. We see that in some type of colorectal cancers, often those that are diagnosed at an early age. These are due to inherited mutations. Often you should talk to a genetic counselor at a cancer center who can help advise you. Sometimes you might have to consider prophylactic treatment. By that, I mean, some people may choose to have a mastectomy ahead of time if they're at greater risk for breast cancer that's related to genetics.
0: And that's a surgery where you remove one or both breasts. That's right. Okay.
3: In terms of colon cancer, you might need to be screened, undergo colonoscopy, that scope that's inserted up through your rectum earlier on, or you might even need to have it inserted down your throat to look for other type of cancers in your GI tract. And there are instances where depending upon if you are at increased risk, you might need to start certain medications to decrease that risk, that often happens at times as well um, after you have cancer to prevent recurrence in, in some types. So it is important to make sure that you talk to your cancer doctor about what you might need to do if you have these inherited mutations that put you at increased risk due to genetics.
0: Okay, that makes sense. Well, let's talk about some of the specific ways you recommend lowering cancer risk. And one of them is exercise. And I was surprised actually by just how many ways physiologically exercise can affect your cancer risk. Can you go over some of those for us?
3: Exercise really is a a type of wonder drug. And if you think about it, do you ever regret going to the gym or working out, right? It might take some effort <laughs> to get there. But how do you feel after you went? You feel like you're, you know, king of the hill. That's yeah, what my, my, I'm really know, glad I did that. that yeah, that's right, <laughs> that's right. You And you know why? Because you have the release of endorphins, those feel-good hormones that, you know, work in certain centers of your brain to, to give you pleasure. But we see it more in terms of, reducing stress hormone cortisol it reduces inflammation throughout your body and it has a role of powerful antioxidants and you know antioxidants are it's almost like um anti tends to be a bad word but it's a good thing (laughs) so there's (laughs) these things called these free radicals and and i'm in Washington, DC, and sometimes you think, well, free radical, but that sounds good. You know, you're free and you're <laughs> radical. But free radical really are these molecules that cause clots and strokes. And antioxidants are things that kind of mop up the free radicals and prevent them from doing harm. So exercise has a role in that, and we'll come to that, What other things have an antioxidant role, but it really is a powerful role in reducing inflammation. And what we've learned over the last few years is that in some ways, cancer is an inflammatory process. And, and inflammation early on, say after you have an injury, is normal because you have a lot of molecules and cells that, that come to help repair if you have knee pain, but it's this chronic inflammation that is helping cancer cells reproduce, divide, and find areas of the body to live. Exercise helps reduce that. So that's why exercise is such a powerful component of a personal cancer prevention program.
0: That's really amazing to think of, you know, you think about strengthening your heart and your muscles when you're yeah. working out, but not all those other more downstream effects. That's fascinating.
3: Yeah, we call it cardio. I mean, when you, yeah. think about <laughs> it, you know, that implies it's just the heart, but it's these other elements as well.
0: That's a very good point. Another habit I was surprised to find in a book about cancer risk was sleep. But it sounds like, and you can tell me if I have this right, mm-hmm. um, like there are so many key processes that are happening in your body while you're sleeping. And when you miss out on that, when you're not sleeping enough, that affects your cancer risk. Is that kind of the the general idea?
3: Absolutely. It's really not just that our bodies are like the computers that are going into sleep mode. It's really, if you think about it, your brain and, and body are clearing out all the Uh, toxins and other aspects of your physiology when you sleep. And that's why it's so important to get good quality sleep. There's certainly a role of several hormones involved with sleep melatonin as as a hormone, not necessarily as the supplement, Um, but melatonin plays an important role in sleep and so does cortisol. They actually work in different ways. And again, the reason why they're important is this role of inflammation and how do we reduce inflammation. And what's fascinating is in recent years, we've seen increased incidence in certain types of cancer in shift workers, people that work typically at night and unusual hours, mm. and then they have trouble sleeping during the day. And multiple studies have been done, and in, in some areas of the world, they have actually governments have reimbursed women that have been shift workers with increased incidence of breast cancer.
0: Interesting. And it's,
3: yeah, it's Medscape actually covered this several years ago. Our, our colleagues uh, at Medscape, it's. It shows the role that sleep has, getting good quality sleep in making sure that your body functions well. And, and here's a thought to consider as we're in the fall and the winter, people will get colds and flus. What's the first thing you do, Carrie, when you have a cold or the flu?
0: Ooh. I do try to get more sleep.
3: <laughs> Absolutely. What do you You try to take off work, you go to bed and think I'll sleep it off, right? Right. Because what's happening there, your body is improving your immune function. You're giving your body a rest. You're bringing white blood cells to where they need to go to help fight infection. You wouldn't stay up all day when you're not feeling well. You'd feel worse. So it's not a surprise when we think about it, the role of sleep in lowering our cancer risk.
0: That makes a lot. Now that you say it that way, it does make a lot of sense, but I would never have connected those two things just just off the top. Um, That's very interesting. Another habit you talk about in the book is what we eat. And kind of like we've discussed a minute ago, I think most people are aware of the connection between their diet and heart disease, for example, but not cancer. What does the research say there?
3: I always tell patients, if they made one change to begin with, they have to rethink about food and consider food is medicine. It's as powerful as a prescription drug. So when you're deciding, Carrie, do you wanna eat those potato chips or do you wanna eat an orange? (laughs) If you think (laughs) about what are gonna be the effects on your body. So what we've seen over time, in terms of red meat and processed meat particularly, is the impact on cancer, particularly colorectal cancer, increased incidence of it. It's been consistently shown over time. We know that people that don't eat a lot of fruits and vegetables also have increased incidence of cancer. Too much alcohol consumption also increases one's risk of certain types of cancer, not just liver cancer, but also breast cancer. Mm -hmm. And the challenge is, I don't want people to think you you can never have a hamburger, you can never have alcohol. It's the consistent food choices that you make over time on a daily basis. And it's as important what you exclude as well as what you include. So you have to look at it both ways. So- if you want to say, okay, I'm going to start eating fish. And most people don't eat fish
0: Mm -hmm.
3: once a week, and we'd like them to eat it twice a week. But I tell people, that doesn't mean you include fish and have surf and turf. (laughs) It means you have have fish. And the reasons why fish is so powerful is, first of all, it's low in calories. So you're going to decrease calories and weight. and, And weight has a component, obesity in terms of, your cancer risk. It has omega-3 fatty acids. It's chock full of those. It has those powerful antioxidants that I just talked about. And that's always going to be a better choice than, I'm going to be honest, having bacon, a bologna sandwich, salami, I mean, your mouth is probably watery now, as, I, as I'm saying those, <laughs> but the, if you think about it, they are salted, they are processed, they are refined, and refined is not a good term in, in, as it relates to food. So again, it doesn't mean that you can never have it, but we're eating that too many times a day. I mean, I grew up having lunch meat on white bread uh, as, as part of my lunch. That's not what I do now because I know the long-term impact of eating like that in terms of increasing cancer risk. So that doesn't mean you can't make a sandwich, but ideally it's on whole wheat or it's an avocado toast or it's, you know, meat that you made at home, a chicken breast, and then you sliced. It takes a little more time and meal planning is a critical component of a personal cancer prevention program, but it's well worth your time.
0: So- If you were talking to someone and encouraging them to build like an anti-cancer meal plan for the week, let's say, um, what kinds of things would you advise that they put on their grocery list?
3: The biggest thing I mentioned is fruits and vegetables. And I ask people, did you eat any fruit today? (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> I, I could ask you, you know, have you eaten any fruit yet today? I ate some fruit this morning, actually. Okay, I had some you're, pomegranates.
3: You're <laughs> but most people do not, you know, not an orange, not an apple. So I don't make it complicated that you have to have it at every meal. But in many ways, you have to start having it every day. You have to include green leafy vegetables. That's an important component. And these don't just help with cancer prevention. They help with other areas of your health as well. So I focus on those areas first. Let's start including things. So remember, I I said it's exclude, include, um, but I don't want to make too many changes at once. And sometimes it's easier to start including things that you haven't eaten before and then removing things. Most people I have to say start with fish just just once a week. Let, let's just start with that and try it for a month and then move to twice a week and then remove some of those other things. I mean, there are so many foods that are healthy that people can enjoy. But as we get older, we tend to become more stuck.
1: what would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC.
3: I don't like broccoli. I don't like, you know, whole wheat. I don't like yogurt. <laughs> I actually had a patient one day say to me, because I'm like, the first thing you can do is eliminate soda. She, she drank a lot of soda. And I, she's like, well, what should I drink? Tea? I'm not making it up. I was like, no. <laughs> she got iced tea. I said, you could drink water. And she actually said to me, I don't like water.
0: <laughs> and wow. I, and I know I hear she, that from people too. It's I like, oh, water's means. too water's too boring. I don't yeah. I don't like drinking it.
3: But you know, I convinced her, and this actually worked for me because I used to drink soda a long time ago. And I changed it by drinking sparkling water. And that was yes. kind of my first transition, flavored sparkling water. And then I transitioned to regular water. And it took time, but you know, I kept at it. And and that's sometimes what you have to do and encourage people. And you might think, how do people not know that drinking soda, you know, every day is a bad thing. A lot of people drink soda every day and it, it's thinking about making those changes. And there's very little, if any health benefit from soda and even diet soda has been shown not to be helpful.
0: I was just going to people- say, cause a lot of people will say, oh, I'm not drinking yeah. regular soda. I'm drinking diet soda. So it's okay.
3: Diet soda has consistently shown not to help people lose weight. And there's a couple of reasons why that is. I mean, one of them is these artificial sweeteners are so intensely sweet that they actually trick your brain into thinking that there's going to be a sugar load coming. And then your body starts to crave sweets. And this may happen with people at three o'clock when they get a diet soda, typically when we're in the office and have a vending machine. And then what do they typically get with it? A candy bar. Or a cookie or, you know, a cupcake because they want something sweet. Or we've seen that people that drink diet soda overestimate the number of calories that they're saving. So, you know, you heard the joke, we'll have a, a cheeseburger, you know, fries, and then we say diet coke. So then it's all
0: okay. <laughs> <laughs> of course, of course. But, it, but it's not.
3: So we end up actually consuming more calories than if we had just been drinking a regular soda. So I hate to disappoint people, but drinking diet soda is not a good idea, but eliminating calorie rich beverages is a good strategy to start to to lose weight. So it's eliminating soda, fruit juices, uh, and really trying to move to things like water.
0: And I, you mentioned this in the book, and I've heard this previously, but I'm so fascinated by actually the role that spices can play Mm -hmm. in lowering cancer risk, um, which could be helpful if you're looking to cut back on sodium, um, salting your food to give it some flavor, you can replace that with spices. But are there specific spices you can call out that are kind of interesting for cancer risk?
3: You know, absolutely. And I've learned more about herbs and spices over the past few years. And that's just really my ignorance in a way, because when you think about it, herbs and spices to treat disease have been around for centuries, if not millennia. And I even remember early on in my training, before we had these powerful anti nausea drugs, Zofran uh, and Dancer Um We would talk about using ginger or ginger ale at that time that did have some ginger. Most of it do not now uh, to help treat nausea. But sometimes I tell people it's things with G's. It's things like, as, as I mentioned, ginger, which has some of these antioxidant properties, which actually has some role in reducing pain. We think it's because they're reducing inflammation. Garlic has a very powerful role Hmm. in terms of reducing inflammation. It actually helps um, your white blood cells fight bacteria and even fungi, fungi of different types of fungus, that's been consistently shown. So some people say you should have a, a clove of garlic a day. Hmm. The other one is ginseng. So I, I, I make it easier for people. Think of things with G. Uh, you know, Ginseng <laughs> is very good. It has what's called these different immunoglobulins, which can help reduce inflammation. Uh, tur- turmeric. Uh, has consistently been shown to be a very powerful spice as well in terms of antioxidant properties. Cayenne pepper has a role I mean, it's basically really any type of spice, which is great when you think about fish, because people will be like, I don't really like the smell of fish or the taste mm-hmm. of fish, but adding these spices can really liven up the flavor of different foods and, and really can be kind of fun uh, doing it. We, My wife and I were using some different Middle Eastern spices on shrimp last night. And I thought, hmm, this is really tasty. It, it yeah. tastes different. And- It gives you an opportunity to try different things. The the great thing is they're low in calories as well. There's not one particular spice that's going to completely reduce your cancer risk. But as you think about what you're including and what you're excluding and aspects that have medicinal properties that we've known for centuries, that's going to have an impact on reducing your cancer risk.
0: As I was listening to you talk about the different um, kind of herbs and spices that, uh, can reduce cancer risk. I was thinking some people might hear that.
3: We'll be back after a quick break.
0: Here is a quick word from our sponsor.
1: We take this few seconds off to inform you, our valued loyal listener about the best health and fitness podcast shows from the Nespod studios enjoy the show
3: and now back to our episode
0: and think oh i've seen that in a supplement um, mm-hmm. at the drugstore so maybe i can just take that and that'll make a difference um i'm sure you hear that approach from your patients as well what would you say or what would you want people to know about these kinds of vitamins and supplements that are marketed to lower cancer risk? And where would you want people to go for reliable information about those?
3: Whole foods are always going to be better than having it as a supplement. And uh, there's sometimes issues with purity of supplements, the way the body may digest a pill may be different than it is in a whole food or a spice that's added to it and then cooked and seasoned with it. So the better choice is always going to be uh, to, to use the spice and, and have it as a whole food rather than to think there's a magic pill in a bottle because there are no magic pills. Yeah, we
0: would have right. probably discovered that by that's now, right. I would
3: think. <laughs> that's right. So People may be wasting their money at times on some of the supplements that are promoting that they you know reduce cancer. I would encourage people to focus on, the, the whole foods and then then adding spices to it directly rather than trying to to buy a mega dose you know, bottle because there's other aspects. So I could say kale has lots of fiber, other nutrients, but it also has other health benefits as well that you're not going to get from a pill. and And that's the big difference.
0: Are there places that people can go if they have a question about something they're taking, whether or not it would be worth it. Are there resources they can check to sort of, you know, get more reliable information on those things?
3: You know, and the FDA does have a page relating to supplements. Uh, there's something called USP, United States Pharmacopeia. They often will do a lot in terms of supplements and in vitamins. They've been a leader in the terms of omega-3 fatty acids pills, of trying to work in some type of uh, symbols for consumers to know the purity of the supplements and, and what they've undergone. So those are, are two sites that folks can go to, besides WebMD, to look for some additional information.
0: Of course, we can't forget WebMD. We do have a lot of really good information on those things. So it's good to call that out. Thank you. Sure. Um, let's talk about cancer screening. Mm-hmm. We're not always so great at keeping up with things like mammograms and mm-hmm. colonoscopies or skin exams, especially after the pandemic when a lot of folks kind of dialed back their the medical care they were getting or the in-person care. So help us get that back on track. Um,
3: Absolutely. People have not come in for their routine screening, partly because we told people not to come in, that it wasn't safe to come in. Well, well now it is safe to come in. And there's a concern that we're gonna miss diagnoses. Uh, A physician friend of mine who's a head and neck cancer specialist told me that the pre-pandemic, he would typically see one new advanced case, a a case that has spread of cancer a week. And for eight months of the pandemic, roughly he saw no new cases. Wow. Why would that have all of a sudden stopped, right? So there are people perhaps, that have the lead diagnosis. You know, and I, I tease patients, it's always the colonoscopy they don't show up for. They're like, oh, was it this day, Dr. White? Or, <laughs> oh, I didn't have a ride. <laughs> I, did, I did like the prep. They, they always have an excuse for the, the colonoscopy and I really have to work on them. Uh, but now we have other uh technologies as well in terms of different stool tests and uh, in mammograms, we have, you know, more advanced testing. One point I want to mention is when we see the guidelines from the American Cancer Society, and I talk about them in my book, those are for people that are average risk. So say in breast cancer, if you have a family member who was diagnosed at, at an early age or in multiple family members, that's you're not at average risk. In, in colorectal cancer, if someone was diagnosed with cancer in their twenties and thirties, you're not at average risk. So the guidelines gonna apply differently to you. I mean, most people don't get a a skin exam and I try to do skin exams on on patients once a year and sometimes they're really surprised, but I'm like, you know, I have to see your back, right? Mm -hmm. You have to just robe uh, and everyone doesn't do that. You you can't do a skin exam, a comprehensive skin exam on yourself. It's just very hard to, to see certain areas of your body and there's nodes that develop in certain areas of our body, particularly under our armpits and our groin uh, and our clavicle a bone in the upper part of our chest that sometimes can be hard to feel for yourself. So you do want an expert to feel for that. And certainly when you have a suspicious lesion, something that looks like it's changing over time, it's not going away, you do want to get checked out. I mean, the good news is In skin cancer, we have some apps now that people can use to get some type of preliminary read where they can take a picture, upload it, and it can be reviewed by a dermatologist. But screening is one of the most effective ways to catch cancer early on. Sadly, we don't have screening for every type of cancer, things like pancreatic cancer and some others. And that's why it's still important to think about ways to reduce your risk. Screening. Is, is a critical component of trying to prevent cancer from progressing. And I really wanna encourage people to talk to their doctor, to go back in, to get those screenings that you might've missed and, and definitely catch up soon. Because I'm concerned that one year turns into three years, turns into five years and people don't come back. And I'll tell you an example, Carrie, of someone I saw recently who had prostate cancer Several years ago, and his screening was different because he's not at average risk. And pre-pandemic, he had not been seen in about six years. And you know, his, his point was he didn't felt he needed to. He said he was busy, and sometimes there's the fear of finding out, right? Mm-hmm. Fofo, I call in my book. Sometimes you call fear of missing out, <laughs> the fear of finding out. That's why sometimes people don't go for screening; they don't want to know. Right. But you want to know, and, and his did not turn out well he had a recurrence of his cancer that had progressed a a fair amount but the point is if you don't go get screened then we don't have enough information and for most people you want to have that information to make the best decision about the next steps with your doctor and there is a fear of finding out i'm going to be honest Some, some people that's why they don't go yeah but at the end of the day We've made a lot of progress in cancer treatments, and if you have it, you want to have the best strategy, the best chance of of beating it.
0: Tell me a little bit about, because I think, and I think you even mentioned this a moment ago, I think people might think, I feel fine. I don't have any symptoms. Why would I go get this screening? Tell us a little bit about the role of symptoms in cancer. Are you always going to have symptoms if you have cancer? that you would notice?
3: Right. So not all cancer present early on with some type of symptoms or they present with symptoms that you easily dismiss as something else. You know, in some ways with brain cancer, we have an awareness of headaches, right? So I I see a lot of patients that come in with headaches and are concerned about brain cancer. 99.8 times out of 100, it's not a brain cancer, but they kind of know that warning sign. So they're quick on it. Although it's typically a certain presentation, often at night, it's, you know, for many hours, it doesn't go away. Mm -hmm. The other element that I always work up very aggressively is when people have unintentional weight loss. Mm. And that's usually about 10% of your body weight. That's a big concern. And sometimes people don't realize they lost weight or it's progressed too much till someone has told them it looks like they lose weight. Everyone doesn't weigh themselves and we've all been wearing sweats lately. <laughs> so,
0: <laughs> not necessarily not, conscious if your jeans are fitting now. a little tighter. <laughs>
3: but it also can present in other ways that you know people might have abdominal pain and they're saying that's stress and they may go see their doctor and their doctor may also say it's stress and try different things. And it takes two or three years and then it turns out they've had pancreatic cancer. I know that happened to a very good friend of mine, someone earlier today that I was talking to for, for something that we're working on at WebMD, is the person, you know, you know, was young and was doing everything right, but it turned out that she was having problems um, with her bowel movements. And the doctor was like, oh, maybe it's irritable bowel syndrome, changing diet. And it turned out she had a mass in her colon. She had a good outcome because it was found, but often we ignore symptoms. That's the biggest issue. We ignore them. We attribute it to something else. I'm having back pain. It's because I'm getting older. It's because I exercised. And you don't immediately think it's a, it's a metastasis, you know, a, a mm-hmm. tumor spread to my bone, but sometimes it is.
0: Or I'm, I'm very tired. Or That's right. Yeah, that's exactly
3: right. Often in, 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 um, Blood cancers, leukemia, lymphoma, that's often a symptom. People are tired a lot, right? And sometimes they think the doctor might even dismiss it and say it's depression because they don't, that's not high on their list. But we need to empower consumers with the right information about what are those signs and symptoms. Everything, of course, is non-cancer, but we have to tease out when it might be and then what's the right screening or testing that one needs to do in your individual circumstance. It's all about your individual circumstance. It's all about your personal cancer prevention program based on your risk. And I included several risk calculators in the book. And this is kind of frustrating because a lot of my colleagues don't go over it with Mm -hmm. patients in terms of, you know, put these numbers in, put these different factors in, and it'll tell you what your lifetime risk is of a certain type of cancer. And that can help you manage your screening interval and screening frequency. And that's the other thing, Carrie, sometimes people will be like, oh, I got a you know mammogram five years ago and it was normal. Well, that, that's not the guidelines, right? Or a colonoscopy. I've seen patients that have a polyp and they'll be like, oh, I didn't think I need it. They took it out. I didn't think I needed to come back. And usually, depending upon what it was, it's three to five years. And, that's one good aspect of certain electronic health records. I go back and I look at it and I was like, well, no, actually it wasn't normal. I mean, that's the doctor's fault for not explaining it well and giving patients a copy and making it clear. Um, but we want to focus on not just screening, but also recognizing those signs and symptoms.
0: Right. My final question for you, um, I'm wondering as you have studied cancer and learned more about it, are there specific changes that you have made to your lifestyle um, that you, you know, just in the service of trying to lower your cancer risk?
3: I actually, while well, in the course of writing the book, decided to get a smart watch mm-hmm. to monitor um, my physical activity output because I was gaining weight because I wasn't eating healthy, as well as to monitor my sleep um, so I could make sure I was getting quality sleep, and I really have ma- re- made a renewed effort to be more physically active. That's something that I had gotten away from even pre-pandemic, and I'll tell you, my wife and I are cooking more fish. <laughs> so we're oh. trying a lot of different things. I've ordered some things online to be honest with certain stores that send it because <laughs> I'm like, oh, that makes it easier. And I've been trying a lot of spices. So I, now, for, I've been trying a lot of different things, but that's over the period of the last year. Uh, but I recognize, and it's hard for everyone. Here I am, i ran a book on it and it's still hard for me to make changes and be consistent.
0: And right. I get well, cause there's I, a lot of yeah. different things that, can, af- that yeah. can affect it.
3: And I have ups and downs just like everyone else. So there are some weeks where we don't eat any fish and there are some weeks where I don't do any exercise but I try to be more consistent over time. And for me, the smartwatch has helped me track things. So I know, hey, I need to do more these last couple of days, or I didn't have a good week last week, so I need to make a renewed effort. And that that has helped me. That's not for everyone, but that's an effort that I've been using to help take more control of my risk. I've always been good about screening. I'll be (laughs) be honest, I I tend to be pretty good about that. Although I I was a year later, so my colonoscopy (laughs) like other people, but it was on my list. Um, But I'm trying to make those changes that I've been writing about. And back to the earlier point, it's about those consistent choices over time. So we all have bad days, we all have bad weeks, but we don't want bad days and weeks turn into months and years where we don't do any type of healthy habits that are going to reduce our cancer risk.
0: Right. Bringing awareness to your habits and, and just whether or not you can meet those, meet those marks for sure. Dr. John White, thank you so much for talking with us today and giving us a clue to these very powerful tools that we all have to lower our risk for cancer. We really appreciate it.
3: Thanks for the opportunity, Carrie.
2: This will conclude the episode.